I love those words. You've already won. And it's so true. Here we are standing in this place, in this time in 2020. But you, God of all ages, have the victory. You've already won it. And as we're saying those words, it encourages us again to realize that you are the God who saves all people. No one too far from you, no one too bad for you. You are the God of all grace. And as we come now and we open up the Bible and we listen to you by your Holy Spirit, we just ask God that you would speak to us, each and every person in this place, encourage us, remind us, perhaps open our eyes for the very first time to see the truth of the God who saves, the God who has already won. And so come now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take a seat. It's so great to be here with you tonight. My name's Trish. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, um, I'd love to after the service. Um, as Trish said, we love doing life together in this place. We are part of one big community, um, and sometimes it does feel very large. So if you are feeling a little bit lost, don't rush off. Stay after the service and meet some people in our lounge, um, because that is definitely part of the way to get to know people. And so is this Connect Group series that we're doing. We are having a look at um, Galatians, which is a book in the Bible. It is a letter that a guy named Paul, who um, is an apostle, he wrote to people who are living in a place called Galatia, um, and he wrote to them to let them know about some truths um, that we are unpacking together as a community. And I want to let you know, um, here we are, week two, that when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't write it with chapters and verses, um, intending that it would be kind of isolated in topics and spoken about a few weeks apart. He wrote it as one big thing. And so when we are sharing with you, we want you to remember um, there's a big picture at play here. So if you weren't here last week, um, or if you've forgotten what happened last week, that's okay. I want to start off just for a couple of minutes doing a bit of a recap of what Dave shared about last week, because it's foundational to what Paul is writing about to the Galatians. Um, and we're going to come across this as we look through this letter all the time. And the best way that I can do that um, to start off with tonight, just a couple of minutes to catch you up, or to remind you, is going to start with a tragic event. Let's just say at the end of this service, you all go happily home, but I um, get hit by a truck, and life as I know it on earth ends, and I am now in the very presence of God at the gates of heaven. And I'm in God's office, and God asks me, Trish, why should you be allowed to come into heaven and spend forever with me? Well, I could say, okay, well, God, let me just tell you all about me. Let me tell you what I've done with my life. The good things that I've done, I've, I've been kind to people as much as I could. I have loved people who sometimes aren't always easy to love. I have given money to people in need. I have been generous with my time. I have done lots of things that are really good things. I've gone to church often, actually from my youngest age. I open up the Bible, I read the Bible, I pray. I have done lots of good things and I want to let you know about that, God. And God goes, well, that's nice. Do you have anything to say about Jesus? I'm like, oh, yes, I do. I actually have something to say about Jesus as well. Good, good prompting, God. Thanks for reminding me. Actually, Jesus is very important to my life as well because I've done some good things, but Jesus has done some great things. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross 
so that I could be forgiven. And he rose again, and he has done an incredible thing. And so Jesus, great work. And what I've done and the good life I've lived, I just want to let you know about that. And when we look at this reality, we learned last week that God has a standard. And God's standard of being in his presence and being with him is actually perfection. And when I'm reminded of that perfection and I look at what's on the table, there's a reality that I have to face. Because while I've given you the highlights of Trish, there is more to my story. I haven't always done what I should do. I have lied. I have gossiped about people. There are times when I should have done something and I willingly didn't do it. I withheld the truth. I have done things that actually reveal that not everything in me is good. In fact, I am not anywhere near the perfect standard. To put anything on this table right here actually deems me unable to even measure up to perfection. The best thing I can do is actually just throw it away and look at only the perfect work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. That's all I have to put on the table. That's all that is needed to put on the table to be made right with God, to be secure for eternity with him. This, Paul says, is the good news. This, Jesus alone. Jesus and nothing else. And Paul wanted the people of Galatia to know that right up front because there are some other things that are at play. And so as we look through this letter to the Galatians, the reality of Jesus alone is what we need to hold on to as well. Because we're moving into chapter 2 tonight. And as we do that, it's an interesting chapter. There's actually quite a lot of things in there, and it can get a little bit complex. You'll see that as we look through it this week, if you're part of a group, um, all the, the nuances and the things that are taking place. And rather than going verse by verse tonight, what I want to do is give you a snapshot of three different types of people that Paul explains about in this chapter. It's three different approaches to the gospel. And Paul wants to make it really clear that there are different ways that people are coming to the gospel because it actually impacts how they live their life. The very first one are a group of people called the Judaizers. And they are people who um, believe that Jesus has done incredible things, but there's actually an additional requirement before you could even think about salvation, before forgiveness will be on offer for you. They believe it is Jesus plus the law that is going to equal salvation. And this is not the first time that Paul has encountered them. In fact, in Acts 15, we read that um, Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, and some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these people actually came from Jerusalem and they've moved to Galatia to start talking to the people there. And they're saying that actually there is a requirement. Yes, trust in Jesus. Trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But you also must be circumcised. You also must keep the law. You must do both of those things to have full acceptance by God as the basis and as the basis of living your life moving forward. They believe that you have to add 
works to the finished work of Christ. And so in Galatians 2, we read that actually this kind of mentality is starting to seep into some of the things that Paul is encountering. And he writes in verse 11, When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul is not happy with what he's seeing taking place because the good news, the gospel, is Jesus alone. And the Judaizers are saying, actually, no, it's not. It's Jesus plus the law equals salvation. To help you understand a little bit more of what's taking place, I want to give you a little illustration. This coming Tuesday, it happens to be Tyrone Thomas's birthday. Very exciting times. Um, I have the privilege of working with Tyrone. He is on staff here as a pastoral assistant for children and youth. And we do lots of things together looking after the kids of this church, and it's awesome. And I thought, you know, in honor of Tyrone's birthday on Tuesday, let's have cake. Who likes cake? Yeah, awesome. Well, James thought the same thing too, and James has actually got a cake. And I don't know if you know James, James is a very good cook, very good cook. And this cake is looking phenomenal, James. Um, James, don't go away just yet. Did it take you a long time to make this cake? Well, I'm pretty good at making cakes, so not actually too long this one. It was a pretty quick process, so. Just like out of the box kind of cake, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you think this cake is going to taste nice? Well, I've been, I've been holding it for a little bit, so I'm, as long as it's not too warm now, I think it's going to taste really nice. Look at the berries on there and the chocolate. I think we're going to be for a win. So you think this cake is, like, perfect? Well, for Tyrone, you don't want anything other than perfect, so this one's going to be great for him. I think you could be right. I think we should say good job, James. Can we give him yeah, a round of applause? Because I agree. I think this cake looks pretty amazing. Um, But actually, now that I think about it, James is right. Tyrone is pretty special. So we want to make sure this cake is actually really good for Tyrone. And like, it's perfect, but I think it could do with something more. I actually think that Tyrone's cake needs some Maltesers as well. Who thinks about some Maltesers on this? Yeah, how good are Maltesers? Oh, sorry about that. That's okay. And Maltesers are good, but you know what's better than Maltesers? Killer pythons. Yeah, we're going to add a few of those as well because sugar in children's ministry is like the best thing ever. So we know that Ty likes sugar. Sometimes he goes on sugar-free diets, but I don't know what that's about. Definitely not for his birthday. Okay, that's good. It's looking better, I think, but it's not done yet. You know what would be really great? There's a whole sugar and salt thing happening at the moment, and I actually think chicken crimpies will be good. So let's add some chicken crimpies to this cake. Let's just really dig them in, because that would be really great. Right on top there. That's good. But we're not done yet, because actually, you know what? Let's put some wheat bix on there as well. He's a growing man. And every good cake actually really needs one last thing. You need some cream on top, right? Yes. Let's just add some cream. Got to really get it on there. Yes. 
Who would like to eat this cake? There's always someone in the crowd that still wants to eat it, which I think is amazing. But here's the thing. This cake was actually perfect. But I thought I could make it better. That I could just add a few extra things to it and it would taste better or whatever. But actually, in essence, I've ruined the cake. I haven't made it better. I took the perfect cake and I've added things to it. And I've destroyed it in the process. The Judaizers are actually saying, we take the perfect work of Jesus. And we're going to add our own efforts to it. In the hopes of making something better, and in doing that, they actually lose the very value of the gift that God has given us. That is one way of approaching the gospel. Actually thinking that we've got something to add, taking the perfect work of God and saying, I will bring my own efforts. I could just make it a little bit better. But in doing that, we actually lose the very heart of the gospel. Paul goes on to talk about another person, another way of approaching the gospel. And it's actually by a surprising person in this passage that he's talking to, and it's about Peter. Peter looks at the gospel, and we know that Peter understands that coming to faith, to understand being a Christian, is Jesus alone. We are forgiven and saved because of Jesus alone, the perfect work of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. We know that Peter knows this because the Bible actually has an account of Peter's life. If he wanted to claim that he was perfect, there's actually written accounts of his imperfections, of his mess-ups, of the times that he failed, and of his response to God's grace. So Peter knows that, but Paul sees Peter doing something really disturbing, And in Galatians 2, we read on from that part there that says, When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. What's happening here is it looks like Peter's life is demonstrating that he understood that it's Jesus alone that will get him salvation. He will be forgiven and he will be saved because of Jesus alone. But living out this life, he needs to follow the law. Jesus equals salvation and then we follow the law. The danger with this is that we had no capacity to follow the law in the first place. And now that we find ourselves in Jesus, we still don't have any capacity to do the things that we couldn't do before. Peter has forgotten the purpose of the law. And the law at work in his life is actually causing an incredible amount of fear. You read that in the very first part when Paul's giving an account of Peter and he eats with the Gentiles until his friends come. And then he's afraid. The fear of not actually measuring up. 
to give you a picture of what's happening in Peter's life, it'd be like I go to university and I don't have the qualifications to get in, so I can't sit the exam. But I have someone who sits the exam for me. They get me into the course. And now that I'm in the course, I actually have to live day after day after day trying to make sure that I can maintain my ability to stay in the course, to actually succeed at the tests that are going to come. Peter is living like his faith is a university degree. He didn't get himself in there. That was all the work of Jesus. But now he has to live out his faith by making sure that he can maintain the standard, by making sure he lives by the letter of the law. And Paul's saying that's impossible. We weren't able to do it before. We actually cannot do it now. The law is not what saves us. The law is not what helps us to keep on living this life out either. In fact, John Stott says, by the law is meant the total sum of God's commandments. Many people assume that they can be justified this way. It is the fundamental principle of every religious and moral system in the world except New Testament Christianity. It's popular because it's flattering, but it is a fearful delusion. No one has ever been justified by the law for the simple reason that nobody has ever perfectly kept the law. The astonishing thing is that anybody has ever imagined he could get to God or heaven that way. The law was given with a very specific purpose. It was given to highlight our need for a saviour. If people could be saved by following the law, there was no need for Jesus to come in the first place. By wanting to try and meet the measure of the law after the fact is trying to render what Jesus has done as ineffective. That is not what the law is for us. In fact, actually, the great news about Jesus coming is that the law in itself has been fulfilled. In Romans 10.4, it tells us that Jesus is the culmination of the law. And in Colossians 2.14, it says this, He, Jesus, forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross. The penalty that the law implies for us because we fail to meet the standard of the law was paid in full in an historical event that took place. When Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again, that debt was paid in full for all time. No longer is there a need for a penalty to be paid because it has already been paid. And so Paul is saying to Peter, why are you trying to follow this law when it's actually been paid in full and you know that? But the reality is we can have this experience of approaching the gospel thinking, yes, I know I needed Jesus to get in. But now I need to live my life following the law to maintain the standards, to prove my worthiness of being here. And the reality is that just produces a lot of fear. It produces a lot of criticism of others because we're trying to look to make sure that we can do those things, to follow the rules, that others are following the rules as well. And Paul's saying that's actually not the way of the gospel. 
In fact, he's so passionate about that that he confronts Peter in front of people because he wants him to remember there's actually another way for us to approach the gospel. And he shines a light on his own life to prove it. In fact, the final verses of chapter 2 are actually the way that Paul approaches the good news, the gospel. And he says, actually, the reality is Jesus alone equals salvation. And Jesus alone is how we live out this life. We couldn't do anything to get here. And we in ourselves are powerless to live it out now as well. But there is good news in the gospel. Good news in the salvation that we find in him. Good news in the freedom that comes from life in him as well. And if anybody knows that, Paul does. In fact, in Philippians 3, we can see that Paul has probably, of all humans, some kind of a right to say that he could earn his way. He says, we put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others had reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault." So Paul said, actually, if it's about having the ability to follow the law, I've got that. But really, it doesn't measure up. If anyone could boast in it, I could, but I can't because I could not meet the requirements of the law. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1, you see the reality of that because he expresses that the trustworthy, he is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul looked at the law and everything that he had accomplished and he compared them to God's holy and perfect standards. And when he looked at them, he said in comparison of all of that is nothing. I am absolutely nothing in comparison to the standards of God. Martin Luther says that actually there's a purpose to the law. When a man has learned through the commandments to recognize his helplessness and is distressed about how he might satisfy the law, then, being truly humbled and reduced to nothing in his own eyes, he finds in himself nothing whereby he may be justified and saved. The principal point of the law is to make men terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace. Paul actually has seen his inability to follow the law, has chosen actually to die to the law and to find all of his hope and life in Jesus. And these are actually the words he closes the second chapter of Galatians with. In verse 19, we read, For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. 
Paul says, actually, the way of encountering the gospel, the way of allowing the gospel to truly radically transform your life is to recognize that Jesus alone is the answer. He is the one who has won our faith, our our salvation, our hope, our life. He is the one. It's through his actions alone, nothing that we bring to the table, not our efforts to follow the law because we are powerless to do it. A great transaction takes place when the gospel is actually empowered to take over our lives. And in fact, Alpha has a short clip that demonstrates the power of the gospel in a courtroom scene. And we're going to show you that hopefully just right now. Maybe. Or maybe not. Let me just tell you about the clip. So there is a judge, a boy, these two boys who grew up together, and one goes this wayward way, and the other actually follows this path and becomes a great judge. And the judge is sitting in his courtroom when this friend from his childhood comes in, and this friend is up for a charge, and there is a penalty that needs to be paid, rightfully, the justice. Here we go. It's going to start. It'll do much better than me. Here we go. Thanks, guys. There once were two little boys who were best friends. They played together, went to school together, they even went to university together. They were inseparable. Until their careers took them in very different directions. One became a lawyer, the other a criminal. As one was promoted to a judge, the other disappeared deeper and deeper into a life of crime. Eventually, the criminal was caught and sent to trial. On the fateful day in the courtroom, he came face to face with his old best friend, the judge. And so, the judge had a dilemma. He loved his friend, but he had to do justice. And so, he fined him the appropriate penalty for the offence. It was a huge fine. There was no way he could ever afford to pay what he owed. But then, The judge took off his robes, went down, stood with his friend, and wrote out a cheque covering the cost. He paid the penalty himself. So Paul's experience is to say that the gospel is that the penalty has been paid in full. There's no longer anything due. It's actually completely paid for. Past sin, present sin, future sin, all dealt with by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But his experience is to say that it's not just that courtroom. At the end of that courtroom, what happens to a person who trusts in Jesus and trusts in him for for their whole life is that actually they get taken from that place and taken out of that land into a whole new land where the old laws no longer apply to them. They live as a new citizen of a new land and they are living under a whole new way. And so living by the old laws is no longer important because they do not matter in this new place. But not just are they in this new land with a new way of life, but they have been given a new power. God himself actually living in his people and helping them to live out this life. It's not that we had what it took to get here. 
We were powerless, in need of a saviour, and Jesus came. And now in life with Jesus, it's not that we have what it takes to live that out without him. We desperately need Jesus as much after we come to him as we did in the very first place of coming. And that's why Paul actually writes in Romans 7, We've been released from the law, for we died to it and we are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. And as we unpack this letter to the Galatians, that's actually what we're going to have a look at next week, what living in this new way with the Spirit is all about. But tonight, as we've been hearing these ways of approaching the gospel, the good news, perhaps as you've heard these approaches, you've been realizing that maybe... You've been thinking actually to come to Jesus requires not just what Jesus has done, but something that I do too. Something that I have to work hard at, that I I need to bring things to the table to qualify for salvation. And Paul, in his letter to the Galatian people, and the reality for all people is that Jesus died for all people because he knew we were powerless to save ourselves. We can do nothing. We're not required to do anything but put our trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Maybe you've understood that as a reality of of coming into this life as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, but you have lived like Peter, that it's like this university place where you, someone did the exam to get you in and now you have test after test after test. You need to make sure you're following the law. You're doing the right things to make sure that you can maintain this faith. Jesus died for our forgiveness and for our freedom. To set us free from the power of the law, the payment has been made in full. We do not need to follow the law to live in Christ. Actually, we put that away and we come to the good news, the gospel, as Paul says, recognizing that we are in desperate need of a savior, recognizing that Jesus has come. He has won for the people of this world, forgiveness, freedom, life, life to the very full, John 10 10 says. That's what we experience in Jesus and all that is required of us is to trust in who he is, to trust that what he has done, the finished, perfect work of Jesus is enough, not just to get us in, but to live this life out in him. And so tonight we're going to pray. And I want to encourage you, if you've approached the gospel in one of the first two ways, I want to encourage you to make a shift tonight. To choose actually not to think that it's something you do, not to get in or not to live it out, but actually to trust fully in Jesus alone, in the finished, perfect work of Christ. So would you close your eyes? We're going to pray together. And if that is you, I want to encourage you, even as I pray now, you can just pray in your heart and your head the very reality of this truth. Jesus, I thank you that you came You knew my need for a saviour. I am powerless to save myself. I recognise I need you. I recognise that you died for me 
And so I trust in who you are. I trust in what you have done. And I choose to live my life in light of that. Help me to do that by your Holy Spirit. If you pray that prayer tonight, that is actually putting our faith in Jesus. That's what it means to become a Christian. We thank you, God. That's what you do for people. You're actually longing to save people wherever they are. And so as we do this journey together, we just want to say thanks, God, for who you are, for your the words you have left with us to study, how you speak to us by your Holy Spirit who inspires us. And we thank you that you welcome us into your presence always. And even as we sing these words of this final song, we thank you, God, just for the reminder of the life that is ours in you. We give you all the glory. Amen. I invite you to stand to your feet. The band's going to lead us in a song that actually just does speak about the truth, that we are welcome to the very presence of God. Um, It's not what we do. It's all about the saving work of Jesus. And we want to give Him all the glory tonight as we sing. Thanks, guys. Father, we uh, we thank you for the message that we've heard tonight. And it's just such a great reminder in a culture and a world where it's all about what we do and then we'll get something in return to hear about a free gift that's on offer, uh, not because of anything that we do, but simply because what has already been done. And that changes everything. Bring such a freedom to our lives, great God, knowing that we don't need to impress you or anything like that. We simply come to you with what Christ has done for us. And so we just bask in the freedom of that and the knowledge of that and the understanding of that great God. And of course, we want to thank you that you made a way so that uh, we could know you personally, so that we could be set free in that and we could know eternal life, life forevermore, great God. We love you heaps, Lord. We love you because you first loved us. You showed your love by this very thing, great God. And so we thank you. We honour you tonight. We give you glory and praise tonight. And I just pray regardless, not just here, but as we go back to our universities, our workplaces, the places in which we live, great God, we would walk in the freedom of this very message. We'd walk in the reminder of what it means to know the Creator of the universe, not because of anything we've done, but simply what You have done for us, great God. And so we thank You, we love You, and we worship You tonight. And we pray these things in Your precious Name. Amen. Amen.